You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. In light of recent events, we're going to be focusing this episode on a piece of American history that many people have not heard of, and that is of sundown towns. In the description of this episode, we will be linking the sources that we use throughout this episode, as well as resources for anyone interested in supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Today, we will be discussing the history, effects, and connection to current events. Based on his extensive research and books about the subject, we will be referring to James W. Lowen's book of Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, as well as Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. This is something that should be discussed as it is a piece of American history that has almost entirely been omitted from education in the U.S. I, for one, had never heard of Sundown Towns until Michaela told me about them about a week ago. So just talking about something that has been happening in the United States and has led to this uprising. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a Black American man, was murdered by police while being restrained. While he was being restrained, there was a knee on the back of his neck, and in a video, he exclaimed, I can't breathe. Without this video evidence, this murder may have gone under the rug. Since May 25th, Americans have been protesting a First Amendment right all over the United States for Black Lives Matter, while demanding reform and changes within the government. During these peaceful protests, cities seeing the largest gatherings of protesters and calling for action enacted curfews in order to stop looting and rioting, quote-unquote, when in fact it is to stop protesting. Again, a First Amendment right. Looking back on the history of the U.S., it is filled with deeply rooted racism. While reflecting on the current curfews, I think it's important to remind people about sundown towns found in all 50 states, most of which ended sometime during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. To be noted that within this episode, while reading quotes and stories by people and within the books, we will not be reading racial slurs or remarks aloud and will be either removing the words entirely or saying something along the lines of racial slur and then the quote. Michaela will be leading the majority of this episode, and then I will talk a bit about the effects of living in a sundown town. Let's discuss the history of sundown towns. From their beginnings around the 1890s up until about 1968, white Americans established thousands of towns across the United States to be areas exclusively for white people and would drive out the black populations, posted sundown signs, and explicitly had an oral method of spreading the information. Some billboards at the city limits would read, racial slur, don't let the sun set on you, in, and then the town name. So you keep hearing us say sundown towns, but not exactly saying what they are. So let me tell you this definition by Lowen. A sundown town is any organized jurisdiction that for decades kept Black Americans or other ethnicities from living in it. These jurisdictions were quote-unquote, all-white on purpose. The source for this used quotes around the all-white due to the inclusion of perhaps one Black household or non-Black minorities and a tiny number of Black Americans living within that city limit. Never heard of it? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I never even heard of them until an anthropology course within the first two years of my undergraduate degree. 
Even Lowen states that despite sundown towns being everywhere, there is almost no literature that exists on the topic, and no book had been written about the making of all white towns in America. And even when bringing it up in discussion, people had no idea what I was talking about. We both studied anthropology, right, in college? That was your main degree? Yes. Yeah, so we both technically got the same degree from two very different places, and Mine was an Ivy League college, and I still have – I never heard of this. We – like, this was never part of our curriculum throughout high school or college or even master's degree. I mean, granted, we did our master's in the UK, but mm-hmm. but yeah, like, I'm so surprised that, like, this isn't a part of the greater curriculum, especially when studying U.S. history. Yeah, that's – Definitely, for sure. And I know when he was going around giving, asking questions and getting interviews from people when he was starting to write his books back in the 90s, one man said something along the lines of, well, why are we bringing this back up? They don't exist anymore. But in fact, it's exactly like the same argument as slavery was years ago. Why -hmm. are we bringing it up now? Mm -hmm. And I know... For my undergraduate degree, I did not go to an Ivy League, but a lot of my curriculum was based on racism and correcting the wrongs from anthropologists in the past. Mm. And even my U.S. history course that I had to take in my undergrad, like my first year, the professor, he made us read um, several books about racism in the U.S. and had us watch movies about it. And all the other U.S. history courses in the undergraduate program did not do that. Mm. All of my courses aligned to talk about racism in some way or another. And very dependent on the person. um, Exactly. Very dependent on the person holding the classes and what they were passionate about and wanting to educate people for. And I'm very grateful of it because I learned a lot, especially coming from a religious high school education where we didn't talk about (laughs) anything. Eye-opening. You've opened my eyes, too. I'm very glad. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I think this is a very important subject. Back into Sundown Towns. So these towns range from tiny cities with a small population, even for being in the early 20th century, to substantial cities and even counties. And we know that in the 20th century, there is an explosion of suburbia, especially after World War II. And all of I wouldn't say all, but a large majority of those suburbias entered within those sundown towns, wanting to create full white neighborhoods. Some of these towns include Levytown in Long Island, Livonia, Michigan, and Parma, Ohio. It may be surprising to hear, but sundown towns were actually rare in the South, as these states were historically dominated by slavery. Therefore, the population in these areas had large Black communities. The states outside the traditional South probably, and I quote, a majority of all incorporated places kept out African Americans. And I'll go more into numbers in a bit, but let's start with their beginnings in the 19th century. In 1865, slavery was abolished in America with the 13th Amendment. With the ending of slavery, Black people who are now free had the ability to move everywhere in America. Well, kind of. This migration happened from 1865 to 1890, and within the 1890s, it saw a change with the integration of Black people into the states, counties, cities, 
race relations deteriorated from this decade until the 1930s. According to Lowen, it's difficult to understand the spawning of such towns outside of this time period, as it was a time that Black Americans were forced back into non-citizenship. It's called the nadir of race relations in the United States. So the definition of nadir is the lowest point in the fortunes of a person or organization. As race relations grew worse throughout the 20th century and had become well accepted in American history. But the deterioration has only been mainly identified in the South rather than being seen throughout the entire country. So let's go back a bit before the 1890s and view the rise of sundown towns. In 1844, before the end of slavery with the 13th Amendment, Oregon passed laws excluding black and mixed black people from entering their entire territory. 1851, Indiana law stated that only black people who were already living in the state and their children were allowed to remain in the state. Everyone else trying to come in could not. It would be common for groups of people to block roads, bridges, and overall areas where people would frequently cross over from one area to another. During the Civil War, a regiment of Indiana soldiers enforced the rule by blocking a group of Black people from crossing the Ohio River to Kentucky. There's a lot more to discuss within the 19th century, but a lot of what happened that has been integrated into society today happened within the 20th century. And, you know, 1900 was 120 years ago. When thinking about it, 1900 doesn't seem that long ago. And historically, it is not long. This century led sundown suburbs between 1900 to 1968, with the effects still continuing far into the late 1990s. And it was around this time anthropologists played a part into making claims that have since been ingrained into education in some way or another. Found in social Darwinism, which morphed into eugenics, which taught that people are the way they are because of their genes, and they could never change. Samuel Morton would measure brain sizes of people around the world and concluded that the brains of white people were larger and thus saying they are more intelligent. Richard Weiss said, Organized eugenics got its immediate impetus at the American Breeders Association in 1904. And no, that's not about dogs. And the list only goes on. With these ethnocentric and biased findings, which have since been disproven, became accessible to Americans who had then based judgment on those facts, not to mention the take of the cinema, which would often display racist themes into their films. The film, The Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith in 1915, happened right in the middle of the nadir and is considered to be one of the most racist movies in existence, along with Gone with the Wind, following after as it is aimed to convince readers and watchers that non-citizenship was appropriate for Black Americans. I'm not even going to get started with IQ tests. But just know, a lot of these institutionalized racist claims became ingrained into society that led into more anger, more hatred, and disgust towards Black Americans. And going back to sundown towns, there was a great retreat during the expansion of Black Americans leaving the South. During this time, it was white supremacy increasingly pervaded American culture, even more so than during slavery, with spreading the question why even let them live in our community, with a them meaning Black Americans? As travel and immigration became more widespread in the 1900s due to faster methods of transportation, 
sundown towns began targeting more ethnicities such as Chinese American, Mexican Americans, Jewish Americans, and indigenous peoples. For example, Humboldt County in California expelled all its Chinese residents in 1885, and the Japanese ambassador, who was driving from San Francisco to Portland in 1930, was unable to stop in the county and was escorted through the entire county until he reached the county line. In 1903, a large group of white people told six black residents in Montevideo, Minnesota, to get out of their town. The Great Retreat can be shown by examining populations of black Americans by county. These counties, and I quote, with no or few African Americans in 1980 and 1930, shows the increase of populations from 119 counties to 235 counties of no black American residents. Counties with just a handful, meaning fewer than 10, increased from 452 to 694 residents. Many counties in 1890 that had black American residents had zero by the end of the 1930s. In Forsyth County, Georgia in 1912, the white people of the county drove out its black population of about 1,100 people. And in 1987, 75 years later, citizens were still defending that action as hundreds of residents hurled bottles and racial slurs at the 75 NAACP marchers challenging the county's sundown status. One man held a sign saying, Forsyth County, home of the rednecks, white skins, blue collars. 1987. Seems pretty recent, right? How about 1997? The Nationalist Party, a white supremacist organization, marched in Forsyth County and later bragged something the sundown town tried to accomplish from its beginnings. The census lists 0.00% of the population of the all-American county as African. Many states were showing similar patterns. Illinois, with over 400 sundown towns. Indiana, California, and so many more were famous for their policy of, quote, intolerance is everywhere, blank, don't let the sun set on you here. There is so much more to unravel within the 19th and 20th centuries. But for the sake of this podcast, we're only diving in so, so deep. So that's why we recommend the readings to you. Okay, now we are currently 20 years into the 21st century. Sundown towns are gone, gone, right? We're not getting taught about them in any history course, so it's over, right? Now we will be discussing the effects after this break, showing exactly how it is not over. Lowen even goes into how towns attempt to keep their all-white status on his website, showing the different sundown towns across America, as websites are easily updated, unlike a book. On the website, it is written for Anna, Illinois, which the name itself is a racial slur anagram. The most recent incident is in 2014, but in 2010, a resident was denied service at a restaurant because of the color of her skin. And we'll be back after this break. In the last segment, Michaela discussed the origins and history of sundown towns in the United States and a bit about institutionalized racism. Here we're going to talk a bit about the mentality of the people living in these communities and the effects of living within a sundown town. One question that Lowen asks is, do sundown towns collect or create racists? And he found that it's a little bit of both. He saw that residents become more racist towards African Americans and more prejudiced towards the LGBTQ community and other minorities, all while collecting people from around the world who are attracted to the lack of diversity. Quote-unquote, white seems right, 
became the mentality because it's just uncommon to see anyone who wasn't white within the community. People started to think that it's perfectly normal to live in all-white communities, even the towns that were originally violent in their expulsion of African Americans. Many people moved into these towns without knowing that they were sundown towns. Children grow up where everyone looks like them. African Americans are seen as not the same. Many even change their political party affiliation before moving as a sort of anticipatory socialization. Some of this is, of course, generalized. Not everyone was to these extremes. There are also cases of young adults leaving the communities to escape this sort of thinking. Children of elites in sundown towns, however, are more likely to move into positions of corporate and political leadership within the community and continue the cycle. Another thing that Lowen mentions is the white privilege of these sundown towns. In 1987, Oprah Winfrey went to Forsyth County, Georgia, then a sundown county, to explore the mentality of how all white became right. She asked the audience if they believed if other races had the right to live there. They responded, they have the right to live wherever they want to, but we have the right to choose if we want a white community also. That's why we moved here. There was something on that, like, that's why we moved here. Mm -hmm. It was, like, first you give them the right to be able to choose, but then Mm -hmm. you take it away by saying, we choose not to accept you here. Mm -hmm. And so it was a way of them justifying the sundown town saying like oh we're not racist they can live wherever they want to but we don't want them to live here and the reason why we chose to live here is because they are not here this notion of white privilege this involves the creation of a black they racial outgroup and thus racism increased in sundown towns because they fostered the idea of a black person not as an individual but as an african-american first These communities then remained white because once it was seen as a privilege to live there, no one wanted to give that up. Within the communities, elite suburbanites also claimed that even if African Americans wanted to live there, they didn't have enough money or personal characteristics, such as IQ, to earn enough money to move there in the first place. The belief that America sorts its people based on ability and that African Americans have less ability made it easy for sundown town residents to eliminate any guilt about living in these communities. Another example of white privilege in these towns is the use of racial slurs to name athletic teams, a common one being Redskins. And on athletic teams especially, there were strong examples of racism in the form of intentional injuries to other players and even throwing bricks at incoming buses of multiracial school teams. I would want to hear more about like the racist symbols and mascots, especially like because we all know now it's like Redskins. Like, That's a terrible mascot like this and that. Like we know that, but it's like for other ones at Cal State Long Beach, they had right now. I don't know if they still have them as the, like the mascot, but Prospector Pete. But people wanted that gone because prospecting led to the genocide of people in California. And so it's kind of just like the again, institutionalized racism where it's just like, oh, no, this is fine. You know, prospecting, it's fine. But it's like, you know, is it really fine? One thing that this chapter also talked about was how these mascots that were problematic existed within the sundown towns. But whenever they would go out of town to play against like multiracial schools, like schools outside of that particular region, they would receive 
well-warranted backlash for um, like the mascot in the way that they would throw racial slurs out at other players. And it got to a point where certain coaches wouldn't put their black students on the field because they knew that they would be targeted on the field for intentional injuries. And a lot of the times that was just their way of dealing with the situation because they knew that they couldn't change anything about the other school. They just knew that they had to protect their own students. There would also be instances where like one principal came in under the only condition that they would change the mascot or change whatever racial slur was problematic at the time. And people within the sundown town would say that they need to uphold tradition and would protest against any sort of changing of racial slurs as mascots. This also leads into the casual use of derogatory terminology within sundown towns to the point where many sundown town residents were oblivious to other signs of progress in in race relations. So they would continue to use these words as casual descriptors for Black people or Chinese Americans, etc. It was to the point where writers within sundown communities, even when quoting a Black person, they would use dialect. For example, they would write the word cuz, like, I did that because I wanted to, for example. They would write it C-U-Z rather than C-A-U-S-E, even though most Americans pronounce it this way as cuz when they're saying it in a sentence. However, no one would write it as such for a white person using the word. There was also an example where a woman who was living in a sundown town, a black family had moved in and was becoming part of the church. And she was really happy that they were integrating different races into the town finally. But she used the n-word and other derogatory terms just as like casually mentioning oh a black family moved in she just casually said that word and it wasn't because she was against them at all it's just because it was ingrained into the way she grew up in this town where she didn't even realize that it was the wrong term to use in this instance or in any instance, (laughs) she didn't realize that what she was saying was wrong because she had never been told otherwise. And that was just something that her community used to describe people of darker skin. Which kind of begs for the question of, if you don't know something, like she didn't know that was wrong, and she wouldn't have known that was wrong, do you hold them accountable for that? Yes. So... Something I talked with one of my friends the other day. He's from Kenya. He was studying in the U.S. for undergrad. And I was talking about my frustration of how, you know, like sometimes you feel you're sharing all of these resources, but some people just don't get it or don't want to get it. And so he told me that just by occupying these spaces, you are giving everyone the tool or the tools needed to be able to change their opinions. And so just like people learn to be racist, they can unlearn to be racist as well. And he described it as being in a room full of mirrors 
everywhere you look, you're being forced to look at yourself and question why you're doing these things. And the more you're being told that's incorrect, the more opportunity you have to question is this incorrect and what do I need to do to change it? And eventually you're going to have to face yourself in the mirror. You can't just keep turning around and looking away because everywhere you look, someone's going to be telling you that what you're doing is wrong. And so I would say, yes, hold them accountable and everyone should hold each other accountable because that's how we learn and unlearn things that we grew up to believe true that might not be true. 10,000% agree to that. Shout out to Patrick. Go Patrick. When you're having a conversation with somebody, especially on an online post, like on Facebook or Twitter or such, by posting those sources, you're not only giving that person who is making these statements and this has this mindset just for them, but everyone else who can see the post. Mm-hmm. So even if in the end, this person never changes, has a change of their mindset or way of thinking or anything someone in their social circle might. Exactly. So it gives access to so many more people than you can even imagine. Mm-hmm. So even if like your goal was this one person, you might have an effect on two, three, five. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I or I re-shared a post like this on Instagram that was talking about this, is that social media can feel like an echo chamber a lot. You're only saying people who agree with you most of the time because that's who you're friends with. So everything I post is mostly being seen by people who agree with what I'm saying, but people in their social circles might be a little different than mine. And just by them sharing it or them seeing it, other people can see it. And then people who see those can see it. And then eventually it'll reach the people who you need to have change within. (laughs) So just by, again, just by occupying spaces and speaking your truth, it will be shared down the line or down the chain to people who need to hear it. And I would say that's similar to Sundown Towns too. And now, now that we've kind of given this backstory for Sundown Towns, you can assess whether or not if it's ethical, if it's justified. I personally have to say it is not and that it's terrible. And But the way that it was spread was by word of mouth or signs and billboards. And it was just commonly known throughout the city, county, suburb, etc. We all know that oral traditions and spreading by word of mouth works. It's always like that telephone game where it starts one way. And then in the end, something gets mixed up. I'm not talk- just talking about sundown towns, but I'm talking about spreading words and messages and speeches and quotes and whatever. So with this new digital age that we are currently in, we have so many more methods to share, to spread news, to give information, and our social spheres are larger than they have ever been in history. Well, when you look at Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, look at how many people you are following, follows you, your friends with, and just think like, these are the people within my social sphere that I have connections with. So I will share with them in some way, shape, or form. I mean, most of it is just that when you're surrounded by people who think one way, 
you're never going to be exposed to other ideas. And especially in these sundown towns, I feel like the trend is that people don't leave them. And so you pass on your property to your kids. They raise their kids there and marry within the community, etc. And so that's one of the reasons why we see a lot of like the younger I'm I'm positive that the internet has such a big role in changing a lot of these communities probably for the better because young adults are now getting exposure to the rest of the world whether their community wants them to or not and that enables them to make their own decisions about how they agree or disagree with the way of life and I think it's so interesting that like specifically young adults are the ones who decide to leave this community or these communities like that's such a specific period in someone's life to to choose to not be a part of like your own history and your family and their decisions and yeah i i it would be interesting to see or to talk to those people who left and kind of determine what the major factors that led up to them leaving were. I bet it's just exposure. And that's why like education and travel and all of these things are so important is because you become exposed to other ways of life and ways of thought. And that helps you to open your mind a little more to how the world actually works outside of your community. So we'll take a break here, and next we'll talk about how this connects to current events today. Within the past two segments, we talked about the history of sundown towns, as well as the effects of them. So now we'll be tying it together with current events, as we are seeing another wave in the civil rights movement. And it is powerful. Something I want to discuss is sundown towns and curfews. So within these protests, a lot of cities around America have implemented curfews from 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the evenings to at least 5 o'clock in the morning. Therefore, what is it trying to do? It's trying to block protesting. They say it's for the rioting and the looting. But in reality, it it's for protesting. Like you're seeing what's happening with protesters and the attacks happening on them by just sitting on the ground, chanting, doing really nothing except for that. You know, just a, a peaceful protest, one of the First Amendment rights. And then by enacting curfews, the protesters are being limited to being able to protest and they have to leave that specific area and go into their homes. In sundown towns, there are curfews. At sundown, if you were a person of color, if you were black, if you were Chinese, if you were Jewish, if you were anything other than white, you would have to leave that town by sundown or else. Just like you have to leave these protests by the curfew or else. Something I've also seen with the curfews is that they're very inconsistent in what the city's demanding or the state is demanding, et cetera, or what the police individually are demanding. And there was one instance I saw with a guy who was working in LA 
and he works like an hour and a half away from where he lives, getting off at 5 p.m. And originally the curfew was set to 6 p.m. on that specific day. And then they had sent out a notice that they had moved it to 5 p.m. So on his way home right after work, he ended up getting arrested because they had moved the curfew to five without doing like an official ordinance of it. So he was arrested for being out past five, even though the original curfew was 6 p.m. And then they went back on it and were like, oh, no, never mind. It's 6 p.m. But he still got arrested because it was 5 p.m. And on the on the slip that they give him, they put that it was out past 5 p.m. That's the reason why he was stopped. And I've seen instances where people are corralled and they are trapped because they are following the peaceful protest methods and following what the police are saying, like the areas that they can go. And before curfew hit, they were planning on leaving. So they started to walk away. They started to march back to wherever they were coming from to be out by curfew. And the police began to maneuver them in different ways. And eventually they trapped them all onto a bridge, over 200 people, 200 peaceful protesters, and arrested all of them because it was past curfew. Even though they were made to stay there. Because they weren't given an option to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, we've been seeing a lot of this all over the place. I think this, I think what we're seeing right now can speak a lot about communities also. Like living within a community, like I said, you're only hearing what the community wants you to hear. And so you interpret that as true and correct. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today also with news outlets like for people like older people who get all of their information from television or any sort of news outlet they're seeing very selective pieces of what's happening that create a narrative that the news whatever outlet it is decides to create and I think that the reason why the younger generations seem so radical to older generations is because we're not watching the news. We're watching our peers and we're seeing the people who are on the ground and posting videos of being there and posting actual live footage of what's been happening. And that sort of stuff just isn't being viewed by people who are watching the news. And I, don't know. I think it's it's really interesting seeing like not only like the racial divide, but also the technological divide between generations during this time. It's like, what are you using your technology to do? Are you using it to educate yourself by looking up books, ordering books, reading them online, looking at firsthand accounts of what was happening on the on the ground? Or getting secondhand, thirdhand sources from news outlets, which purposefully alter photos, videos to fit whatever narrative they are trying to create. Like, I know, I I think it's in New York or something that there are people sitting outside of shops with guns to protect their businesses. Mm -hmm. And the image that they showed was of two white men. But when you look at the actual image and expand it, there's also 
black people in there and other people that are just not only white. Just business owners protecting their shops. And so it's trying to fit a certain narrative that only certain people are fitting into and trying to put people into boxes, which is what they have been doing over the last 400 years of American history. (laughs) And that one image can be interpreted on both sides of the argument. You have, like, if that was posted on the left side, you have, oh, these two white men have guns and they're planning on stopping people from doing whatever Mm -hmm. because they're so privileged with their guns. And then on the other side, it's we're defending our property from these crazy Black Lives Matter protesters and... But in reality, everyone just doesn't want their shop to get ruined and they could very well be in support of what's happening. And yeah, it's 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 interesting how you can take one image and have so many different interpretations of it. Yes. And I think that's why it's important to have to yourself seek out multiple sources of information, not just one piece of news that you like to read it's really important to broaden your your outlets a thousand percent because when you only are looking at one sort of news outlet you are only going to be like we were saying having that specific social circle Mm -hmm. and seeing that specific news circle and you know they'll crop images they'll alter quotes, misquote. And a lot of what I've been seeing lately is the usage of passive voice instead of active voice. I am, um, I believe it was in Ohio that a 22 year old, she died because of being tear gassed. And that's what it was saying. It's like 22 year old died of tear gas. What it's not saying is police murdered 22 year old girl by tear gassing her. And so it's creating this narrative kind of Like not placing the blame on anyone. Exactly. And trying to stay neutral, whereas being neutral may not be of much help for anyone because... It just becomes another story rather than something you need to take action towards. And pushing it under the rug, making it become a skeleton in the closet, just like we would see with the traditions of mascots. And it's like, oh, well, this is... We're just we're going to take our players out of the game. We're not going to do anything about those mascots, but we want to protect our players. Okay, what's another way you can protect your players? Because these players want to play. They don't want to get attacked either. What's something that you could do to protect your players and being able to let them play in their right position that they should be playing in these games? But yeah, rather than attacking the issue, you sit them on the bench. Yes. And then it kind of goes back into that narrative of, yeah, you keep those people on the bench, quote unquote. And it's like, yeah, it feeds the cycle, never ends. Feeds the cycle. And something that's been happening is the removal and destruction of statues. People are arguing, saying, like, you know, this is history. We shouldn't be just doing this to them. And this is tradition. These are, like, these are icons for our tradition and this and blah, blah, blah. No, they need to be removed. They shouldn't be standing on an altar being revered for their wrongdoings. It's not that they're being erased from history. That's not the issue. It's that they're being 
presented as ideal in society by being a sculpture in the middle of a town. I know that the Robert E. Lee statue was going to be removed and they had plans for it to be removed. But now those plans are being halted because of a lawsuit against the removal. Mm. The Robert E. Lee statue, for those who who may not know, um, it's a Confederate symbol where Lee was fighting to keep slavery during the time of change. And people still look up to this general saying he was a great general and wave the Confederate flag around. It's kind of similar with the American bills as well, such as with the $20 bill which features Andrew Jackson's face. And if you don't know, Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States. He was revered for the big banks, the creation of them in America, and saying he's this big economic guy. But a big but to this that people like to omit or say, oh, you know, it's just something that happened because of the times. He was an abusive slave owner and single-handedly caused the genocide of so many indigenous peoples in the movement of the Trail of Tears. And not to mention that he was against the outlaw of slavery during the Western expansion and banned the movements of abolitionists who tried to abolish slavery in the South. So these traditions of a bill, the $20 bill, of these statues are being seen as part of history which, which they are, but it's time to change and move forward from these times. You're not seeing, su- you're not being taught about sundown towns. You don't see them. There is an oral historic presence in those towns based on quotes and stories from the people who live in those towns. In order to make some sort of progress, you have to be accepting the change. And it's not this big old change where people are going into communism or totalitarianism and all this stuff. We have a democracy in America, but we are not seeing it currently. And everything needs to change. I saw a post the other day that was just like reflecting on what you were taught in elementary school, just generally about history. And like you learn... George Washington was a good man and he was wise and truthful and Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery and then everyone was happy. And there's this narrative that like all of these rulers of our country did all these great things. And yeah, some of them were very good things to do, but you don't hear about everything else that was happening during that time. You don't hear about the other people who were present during that time or the negative effects that these people had on the country. And I think we have a really bad habit on focusing not only on white people in this country, but also good things white people did in this country instead of giving an all-encompassing history of every person involved or every people involved. And so, yeah, I think we just need to break it all down (laughs) to the very bone and 
yeah, reconstruct how we deal with education, how we deal with government, how we deal with policing. We just need to start new because <laughs> it was all built off of that one way of thought and it hasn't changed since then. And what I've been seeing recently was that they are making strides for change and saying like, okay, we're not going to be doing this anymore. We're not going to be doing that anymore. But I feel like that's not really addressing the issues that are happening. Sure. Like, okay, those are like big changes, but there's so much more you can do than just being like, okay, yeah, no more chokeholds. It's like, okay, what else are you going to do? Is it that it? We're going to require our police officers to be educated and have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and learn what not to do in these situations and how not to be racist and how not to assume that everyone has a concealed weapon based off of the color of their skin before they even get into the police force is where we need the change. One thing I want to discuss was something that you mentioned before, Alyssa, and I'll quote it. The white privilege involves the creation of a black, quote unquote, they racial group. I know from what I've been reading and seeing and being exposed to is a lot of people are using that they when discussing black people. And have you been coming across that as well? Is it something that should be called out? As in, like, I'll quote this, like, who do you mean by, quote unquote, they? Are you talking about black people? Why aren't you saying that? Why are you using they instead? I think more what I've seen recently, more than like a black versus white issue, is people labeling it as democratic versus republican issue. And I've chosen to call this out um, whenever I see it, just because from my right following people on Facebook, they say, oh, I can't believe the Democrats are just allowing this to happen and allowing all of the looting and the murder. And what about the good cops and that sort of thing? But it's not Democrat versus Republican. It's a humanitarian issue that everyone is involved with. It's not us versus them. It's not political party versus the other. And I think that's the most common one I've been seeing in the last couple weeks is separating it by political party. And just by default, Black Lives Matter gets lumped into Democratic views which isn't the case. Yeah. I would have to say that I have not seen that on my feeds, like my Facebook feeds, like the Democrat versus Republican. I do see a lot of all lives matter versus black lives matter. And it's within those all lives matter or black lives matter posts where the all life matter people. (laughs) Um, That's, that's a little bit of tongue twister that the all lives matter enthusiasts are saying those types of things and kind of just generalizing it's hard to read because you start commenting on back and forth and you have conversations or at least you're trying to have a conversation but the person is deflecting not giving any sources or evidence where they're getting their numbers from and 
just at all, like not trying to have a conversation, even though they started the comments on that post. Like what we were saying earlier is that even though you can't not convince or argue your point to that person, trying to show Black Lives Matter and why and what's been happening, and that person just doesn't want to listen or change their mindset, and they can only change themselves, you know? The common thing here is just the split between like us and them, whether that's All Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, or Republican, Democrat, like... We love putting people into boxes, and a lot of the times that's not the case where you're not living in boxes. And what a lot of people struggle with is realizing that there's a spectrum of ideas and thoughts out there. And by associating with one idea that's traditionally on the other side, you feel like you're not giving your own beliefs justice and I think a lot of people just shy away from incorporating both sides into their I think there's too much separation of thought right now yeah it's one against another and like you said it's it's a humanitarian issue this is human rights Mm -hmm. and that just comes from people like consistently sharing oh it's the looters or it's the Democrats or it's the Republicans or it's these people who are doing these things. And that just generalizes and lumps everyone together into one description. And a lot of the times that's not true. It's usually one person who did this regardless of what they're affiliated with. And then that gets lumped with everyone else. And yeah, I think we need to stop generalizing and lumping people and actually listen to individual stories and reasons behind movements. Because I know people are asking, why is this happening again in 2020 when the civil rights movement was in the 60s? Yeah, I would have to say that it has never stopped. So this is a piece of history that we found interesting that a lot of our peers didn't know and we felt like it would be an interesting piece of American history to share with all of you. We hope that you're safe and healthy during this time wherever you may be acting out your rights as an American citizen. Make sure you do it with a face mask and hand sanitizer. (laughs) As we are still in a pandemic. Yes, whatever you may be fighting for, do it safely and be kind. We're all humans, part of the same. Yeah, be kind, share love, compassion, listen, patience. No matter what side you're on, listen to each other. And everyone keep learning. It's all it's all a process. We keep going. You never become an expert in these things. You always continue to learn and try to make yourself a better person. And there's a lot of books that are currently free online that you can read on. There's a lot of videos, movies, documentaries that touch on all of these things. Netflix is doing a great job at showcasing some of these movies. Yeah. Personally, like documentaries are pretty biased as they are just trying to show one side. But being able to go into a documentary with an open mind 
and watching them and take the information that they're giving you and assess the information. And knowing that they're probably biased. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just taking the facts and the evidence and the quotes that they're using. And if you are a researcher and like to research, go into those sources and read those full those full articles or books or wherever they're getting them from. And being able to make assessments of your own based on the knowledge that you are obtaining and have conversations with people and be open for some sort of criticism and being able to have conversations with people who may not agree in that way and just be open and listen. That's about the the best thing to do during this time, along with protesting. <laughs> One thing I need to work on as an individual is knowing what I'm reposting rather than taking it at face value. Mm-hmm. And just assuming that whoever posted it before me did the research, I think I need to work on doing my own research before posting things that are deemed factual. I highly suggest doing that, especially when signing petitions. Actually read the story. Don't just sign and post just to sign and post because everyone's doing. Read the story. Learn about the person and actually humanize this petition if it's about a person if it's not about a person but like removing a name off of an institution just read about the history and actually fully understand why this petition is going around and then you'll be able to talk about it more and being able to make comments about it and say hey this really needs to go through this is not right this is injustice disgrace on humanity let's get this right so like we said in the beginning, in the description, we will be posting links for our research and for petitions and organizations that we have researched into. And we encourage you to research into them, sign petitions, virtually protest or physically protest if you are able. And keep talking to each other. If you have any questions, any comments, or just want to have a conversation with us, feel free to message us at I dig it podcast on Twitter and Instagram, as well as our email, I dig it podcast at gmail.com. We are fully open and willing to have any sort of conversation. And we would love to hear from you guys and hear your points of view and your stories and anything that you've been doing. Keep it up. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.